If you are anything like me, first of all, bless your heart, but if you are anything like me, there are certain accounts, certain stories in the Bible that you probably wish you had a visual of. You have some picture in your mind, but you kind of wish, does the picture in my mind actually match up with what actually happened? I think a lot of us, for example, would like to know if Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea is actually what it looked like, although I have to say that probably it wasn't since there's only a few people in the movie and there are millions, as you would have it recorded probably in Exodus chapter 14 as they crossed the Red Sea. One that I've always kind of wanted to know exactly what it looked like in mind for some reason is the fall of Jericho. I don't know why. I've taught, been taught that story since I was a kid. and I have a picture on mine, but I've always wondered exactly what it looked like when those walls fell down. And some translations have it fell down flat. And what did that look like? I've just always wondered that. I guess I'll never know, but for some reason that's always fascinated me. I've always wanted to see some of the miracles of Jesus. What, what was it like when someone who was blind could now see? What was it really like when someone who couldn't walk now got up and started walking and all those things and Maybe it says more about me than it should, but I've always kind of wanted to be there when Jesus put those demons in those pigs and stand off the side and call out, Suey, just to see what happened. I don't know why. I just have kind of, that's just part of me. I don't know. But on a very short list of events that I wish I had a visual of, that I really wish I knew exactly what it looked like, is the one we read together, at least part of, a few moments ago from Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven. It had to be overwhelming. In fact, we know it was overwhelming because you recall that those who were there, it seems, just kept looking up. They just kept, as the angel said, gazing into heaven. And the angels basically said, well, why are you doing that? Why are you continuing to gaze up into the sky? And sometimes I read that, I think, I know why, because I'd be doing the same thing. How do you believe what you just saw? That here was the one who was just walking with you and just talking with you, and now he's taken up into the clouds. What did that really look like? Oh, I wish I knew. But this morning, I want us to think about those words that Jesus said just before he ascended. In the verses that Kyle read for us a few moments ago from Acts chapter 1, you remember that Jesus, as you've probably heard it said before, basically outlined the book of Acts for us. Because when those apostles were looking up into heaven, or getting ready to look up into heaven, excuse me, because he was still with them, he said, you go into the city. You'll be endued with power from the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. Or the old King James has the uttermost parts of the earth. And you've probably noted before, that's exactly the way the book of Acts outlines for us. Those apostles did go back into the city of Jerusalem. And they were given the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And for several chapters of that book, they stayed right there in Jerusalem. All the believers did, it seems, stayed basically in the city of Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8. When persecution occurs, and because of their effort, and because of the persecution, they spread. And they spread to Judea, and they spread to Samaria. And by the time you come to the end of the book of Acts, you have one like Paul, who is even as far away as Rome, and has a desire to go even further. They're going to the ends of the earth. So much so that Paul could write about three decades after after that statement, excuse me, was given by Jesus in the book of Colossians, that the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Now, 
Some suggest that's just poetic, that he was just saying that as if it had been preached to every creature under heaven. Some say it's literal. Whichever one it is, I believe it to be literal, but whichever one it is, just the fact that Paul, by inspiration, could say that tells us so much about what the early church was doing. And sometimes we read the book of Acts, and we see words like grew, we see words like added to, we see phrases like multiplied, and we think, well, of course the early church did those things. They had Peter, or, or they had Paul. They had these famous, well-known, eloquent, good writers, these high-on-a-pedestal-type Christians. But then I read Acts chapter 8, and I'm reminded that when that persecution hit Jerusalem, Acts 8 and verse 4 tells us that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. And the apostles remained in Jerusalem, at least at that time. And so those who were scattered, those who were simply going all over the kingdom, all over the the known world at that time, it seems at least at first, were just everyday people. But they were everyday people who believed enough in what they had been taught and what they had done, that wherever they went, even by persecution, they taught the message of the gospel. Jesus gave the outline. The people followed the outline. That's the end of part one of our lesson. Enter part two. Several weeks ago, I handed out some surveys, or your teachers did, several classes, the adult classes. They were very simple, uh, eight-question surveys to be filled out anonymously. And I want to thank those of you who took the time to do them. Some classes didn't hand them out. That's fine. Some did. That's fine. But it wasn't meant to be some kind of scientific survey. It wasn't meant to be perfect. And after this past week, we don't deal with scientific surveys anymore anyway, do we? That's not the way it is. But we, we, in all, about 50 of those things were filled out by members here at Ninth Avenue. In fact, exactly 50 were filled out. There were just eight questions. If you didn't see them, there were just eight questions. They were about basic things, things like habits of Bible reading and personal Bible studies and those sorts of things. And again, they weren't supposed to be scientific. I'm not going to share all the results of the survey because that was never the intent of them. But I want to talk about one aspect of those particular surveys. And by the way, since they were anonymous, the goal is not to sort of shame or to lift up. It's simply to open our eyes to some things that were found there. First of all, one of the final questions on that survey was a fill-in-the-blank question that simply said, I have been a Christian for blank year or years. The lowest number, by the way, was one. How exciting is that? The highest number was 76. How exciting is that? But 47 people answered that question, and of the 47, the average was 40.17 years. I was told there'd be no math at church, but here we go. If you put that together, just those who filled out that question on the survey equal a total of 1,880 years of Christian living. Now I know about you, but that makes me swell with pride. Folks, that's just a small slice of this congregation, 47 people, 47 adults. It is a small slice. And just that group equals 1,880 years of wisdom, of experience, of Bible knowledge. And did you notice a moment ago I said a couple of those were one year and all the way up to 76. And basically it seems almost everything in between. If we were to get every member of this congregation, every adult member to fill out that survey, I would suppose the number would triple or probably even a little bit more than that. 
beyond 1,880 years. But here's what I want us all to think about for a few moments. And here's where we're going to be very serious for a few moments. And that includes with the person standing up here. And by the way, full disclosure, I did not fill out one of the surveys because I knew the questions. Okay? I, I, I didn't think that would be fair for me to fill them out since I wrote them. But here's where we're going to go. In those 1,880 years, how many Bible studies have been conducted? We have the truth. We know the truth. We know what the Bible says. We know that we're to be regularly studying the Bible with people and trying to reach out to people. And so on the survey, I asked that question again. And I, and I appreciate those of you who answered it honestly. This is part of the question. Since I became a Christian, I've had a personal formal Bible study with blank different individuals. By the way, the question, if you didn't see it, went on to say how many of those became Christians. Well, I'm going to that part of the question this morning. Now, let me say this before I go on. By using the term formal Bible study, I understand some people would not fill that out completely because they would say, well, I talk to you about the Bible all the time, or I answer questions at work all the time, or someone asks me a question on Facebook quite often. That's wonderful. And so I worded that very intentionally for that reason, formal Bible studies, because if we just said, how often you talk to me about the Bible, who knows? Thousands, tens of thousands, who knows? But how often have I sat down with someone with an open Bible and tried to lead them through a study of God's Word? Now, before I reveal the answer, let me remind you of two things. First, we're dealing with 1,880 years of Christianity. But more than that, may I remind you of the town in which we live. In the 2010 U.S. Census, there were 4,173 residents just in the city limits of Haleyville. And we all know that there are people even in this room who don't live within the city limits. We all know people who... We, we have come in contact with at work, at school, with, in our neighborhoods, if we live outside of the city, who, who are not in that city limits. The, the current population is estimated to be just over 4,100. But we're not dealing with the current population. We're dealing with the population over all that time. But of that, how many? In 1,880 years, 119. Now, I know that's only by those who filled out the survey. But that's 119 Bible studies in almost two millennia of Christian living. And folks, I'm preaching this sermon this morning, and I can promise you there have been a lot of tears flow from these two eyes when I thought about what if I had filled out one of the surveys instead of just writing them. Close part two of the lesson. Open part three. But Adam, I can hear it already. We can come up with every excuse in the book why we haven't, why we don't, why we won't. Can I read your mail a little bit? And the reason I can is because it was not hard for me to come up with excuses because all I did was think back to my own. I want us to think about why sometimes we don't engage someone, why we don't speak to someone and say, I just want to open the Bible with you, not to show you that you're wrong and I'm right, not to show you that I'm wrong and you're right, but to simply say, God is right, and I want to make sure we're both right. And I want to sit down, I love you so much, that I want to sit down with an open Bible in front of you, and let's think about what God has actually said, because I want to go to heaven, and I want you to go to heaven, and the only way we can go to heaven is to do what God says through the Bible. 
What excuses do we give? I think maybe the top one is I'm afraid I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. It's the, it's the easiest to give because religion by its very nature is so personal. We're so afraid that we're going to hurt someone's feelings because by definition, we might be telling someone they could be doing something that's, that's wrong or that's against the will of God. And by extension, what if we hurt the feelings of somebody that we're friends with, have been friends with for years, even decades? What if it's someone who's even our family? It's a difficult excuse to overcome. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. That's never our goal. We, we certainly don't want to harm a friendship. But may I simply ask me as well as you, am I really being someone's friend if I don't tell them about the most important thing of all time, and that is the destiny of their soul? In the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, beginning of verse 5, Better is open rebuke than hidden or secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Well, what's Solomon's point? I don't read poetry very well. If I'm not really willing to tell a friend something that might hurt them, but hurt them for their own good, what kind of friend am I? Solomon is saying I'm not really a friend at all. Because open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You've had a friend before in your life, I'm certain, who has said something that hurt you, but over time you realize it was exactly what you needed to hear. And you consider that person a better friend because they were willing to, if you please, wound you, to use Solomon's word found in Proverbs 27. Yes, I might hurt someone's feelings. Not because I want to, and not because of the way we present these things, but because they might realize I haven't been living right, I haven't been doing what God said, and that hurts to know. But if I really want to be a friend, I must be willing to do that. Are we too busy only thinking of earthly friendships to seek someone's eternal and spiritual good? Or what about this excuse? I just know that person won't listen. You don't know that person. You don't know him like I do. You don't know her like I do. I've known them for years, or I live next door to them, and I know how they live. You, 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 they, they won't listen. I know those people. Now, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in our, our Sunday morning lesson on homecoming. It's remarkable, though, how many Christians are in the soil testing business. You may remember that from that lesson. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, beginning of verse 6, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, or the increase some translations have. And then he went on to say, For neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul's point in part is, you plant, you water. I planted, Apollos watered. God gives the increase. It's up to him. I remember the first congregation Lee and I went to after we graduated and I became a school teacher and a youth minister, the preacher there, I heard him say this, I don't know how many times, because he preached the same sermon a lot of times, but I don't know how many times I heard him say it. But, but he said, when I first became a preacher, I thought my job was to plant water and give the increase. And over time, I remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I plant and I water and leave the increase, leave the growth up to God. But here's my point. There's one thing that's missing from that little formula. Soil testing is not listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All he says is, we plant the seed, and we nurture or water the seed, and God will give the increase as, increase as God sees fit. And you think about the people 
to whom Paul wrote this, Corinth was a horrible place. It's hard to think of a more wicked, pagan, idolatrous, deviant place than Corinth in the time in which Paul wrote these words. And so Paul could have gone there or written this letter and said, don't worry about teaching any of those folks because there's no way they're ever going to want to listen to this truth about some person who died on a cross. Not at all. Not at all. Paul said, you plant and you water and God is faithful. He'll give the increase. Someone may not listen. Someone may not listen on the first try. Someone may not listen after several tries. And yes, someone may never listen. But our job is not to be soil testers. Our job is to plant the seed and continue to try to nurture and water that seed and leave the growth, leave the increase between that person and the Lord. Excuse number three is the excuse of, it's not my job. You ever consider the fact that part of becoming a Christian is counting the cost? Am I really ready to wear the name of Jesus every day for all of my life? Am I really ready to follow all of His commands throughout my life, whether I become a Christian as a young person and have potentially decades yet to live, or whether I become a Christian late in life and I don't know how many days I have left to live. Whatever the normal life cycle is or normal life term is, all that time that I'm a Christian, that I'm I'm living, am I ready to live for Him fully and faithfully every day? When we become a Christian, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 that we become ambassadors for Christ. I become His representative. Wherever I may be, you decide to follow all His commands all the days of your life and my life. And that includes the command of the Great Commission. Yes, there are some who devote themselves full-time to various roles in the church. Some, like myself and Tyler, choose to work full-time under the oversight of the elders doing specific things to help them and to to, to teach publicly and, and do other things that support the local church. And I'm thankful for that. The Bible also provides ways for elders to if you please be full-time, to be, to be paid if they so choose, if a, if a congregation so chooses. Few congregations do that, but it's there if an elder decides to be one who is faithful in the preaching and teaching of the Word. But every Christian has the responsibility to teach those they come in contact with. And it only makes sense because there's only so many people that a small group can impact. You have neighbors and friends and coworkers and classmates and family members who I don't know. But you do. And I have friends and neighbors that you don't know, but I do. It's time to realize it is my job. It's all of our jobs. But here's the thing. Everything I've said so far, I think everyone in here goes, yeah, I understand that. I know what the Bible says. I get it. But here's my excuse. I just don't know what to say. You're talking about a formal Bible study. I don't like the word formal. <laughs> I just don't like that. And I, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot of words in here, and some of them have like F's on the end of it and stuff. And I, I don't know what I'm supposed to tell somebody. Am I supposed to tell them, you know, all right, God created everything, and then there was this flood, 
And there was this guy named Abraham, by the way, and then Moses came along and gave a law, and, and, af- and after that, you see, the children of Israel fell away, but God sent them some judges, and they helped out, and after that, there was Saul and David and Solomon, and after them, the kingdom divided, and following that, there were some prophets who came along and helped the people realize their problems, and after that, there was a silent period. I don't know what happened between, like, Malachi and Matthew. It seems like something happened, because then John the Baptist came, and then Jesus came, and Jesus died on the cross, and after that, this guy named Paul preached the gospel. What do you think? You want to obey? What? What am I supposed to tell somebody? If you knew enough to become a Christian, you know enough to teach someone. Because you know what you did. And you know why you did it. You know that Jesus saves. But even if that's, that excuse is too much, you may see it's a small picture. I know it's small, it's hard to see. I understand that. Beginning, the elders have talked about this, and we're not sure the exact time yet, but after the first of the year, probably, probably in January, we are going to have a DVD series. My family's been watching it to kind of preview it about personal evangelism. It's five lessons. Some of it's just motivational. Some of it is informational, what to say, how to say it, those sorts of things. We want to take this excuse away. It's not some perfect method but it's something where if this is your excuse, I, I just don't know what to say. We want to take that excuse off the board. And our goal, by the way, one reason we haven't planned the exact dates yet, our goal is to show each lesson two or three times during the week so you can come like during the day or in the evening or whatever and it can fit as many people's schedules as possible. We're not worried about having 60 people at one viewing or having 60 people at three or four viewings during the week. But yes, between now and then, If you are a Christian, you know what you did. And you know enough. Close part three. In 1880 years, 119 people have been engaged in personal Bible studies by the ones who filled out the survey. I'm not here this morning to say that if we increase that number tenfold, that all of a sudden hundreds of people would suddenly swell this building to to the breaking point to be baptized. That's not my point at all. My point is to make us think for a moment about our job and to make certain we understand something that Jesus taught in his famous parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is not meant to be a mathematical formula. Jesus was not saying when he gave those four kinds of soil that exactly 25% of the people are the wayside or hard soil and exactly 25% of the people are thorny thorny soil and exactly 25% of the people are are rocky soil and exactly 25% of the people are good and honest hearts or good soil. That's not his point. He's not saying that if I leave this building this morning and invite four people to worship that one of them will take the invitation. That's not his point. He's not saying I sit down with four people and have a a formal Bible study that of those four, three are going to turn it away and one's going to follow That's not his point. He's trying to simply say our job is to sow the seed. That has to be one of the takeaways from the parable of the sower. Even if you did not fill out one of those surveys and you have no idea what I'm talking about with those surveys, let me just simply ask a question. Those things I put up there a few moments ago, other than the number of years you became a Christian, would your answer to the number of Bible studies really have changed the ratio all that much? We have about 4,000 people in this community, just in the city limits, who are unprepared for eternity. But folks, there's more than 200 of us, plus the members at South Haleyville and other good and faithful congregations, 
who are trying to live for Christ. We can send out a mass invitation to a gospel meeting or a mass invitation to a vacation Bible school. We can put something on Facebook about tomorrow morning's sermon. That's fine, but that's not going to do it. That's not going to reach them. The days of putting up a flyer or a a banner in the front parking lot and saying gospel meeting tonight and people fill in the building, folks, those days are over. I hate to say it, but they're over. But the days of every Christian reaching somebody will never be over as long as Christians reach somebody. That'll never end. Because people need to know that someone cares. A banner or a flyer doesn't display that someone cares. I love you enough to open the Bible with you. Says I care. Jesus wants us to see it's time to get past our excuses and teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. And when we're done with that, teach some more. And Jesus is also trying to get us to see that while it's not a mathematical formula, there are still good and honest hearts. Yes, you will be rejected at times. Yes, people will give you every excuse in the book why they can't or won't or refuse to. You're going to be made fun of sometimes. You're going to be told to leave people alone. You're going to be called a fundamentalist. You're going to be called a closed-minded person. Why do I know those things? Because I've heard every one of them, okay? It's not, it's not, this is not unusual to be rejected, to be called names. All those things are true. But when you find that one person, when you find that one who has a good and honest heart, the one who's willing to study, the one who's willing to open the Bible, and at least examine what the Scriptures say, it's worth every rejection. It's worth every name. It's worth every difficulty. Listen. I didn't come this morning to shame all of us. It may have come across that way, and I apologize if it did. What I wanted to do this morning was wake us up. If, if I'm not teaching people about the gospel more than just standing up here and proclaiming it, if I personally am not trying to, to reach into God's Word and reach into people's lives and connect the two, I'm not living a faithful life because that's what Jesus said are the marching orders for His people. And I don't want to stand at judgment and have to answer for living a life that's not faithful. Parents, It's time to teach your children the Bible in your home. And not just sports. And not just academics. Grandparents, the same. Neighbors, it's time to teach your neighbors the Bible. And not just what sports team you root for. Christian young people, it's time to reach into your school, your classmates, and tell them about Jesus. And not just your favorite band. Christians, it's time to reach out in your neighborhoods. It's time to reach out to your Co-workers, it's time to reach out to your family members and tell people, I love you enough to talk to you about your soul. It's not easy. And as I said, this is a lesson that I need as much as anyone else. Last Sunday morning, I met with the elders. Tyler and I did, as, as I believe Brother Danny made the announcements last week. If I remember right about the elders meeting. And we talked about this a little bit. In fact, a couple of things I said this morning were were recommendations from them of how to word a couple of things, and I appreciate that greatly. And I, I refuse to share the, the specifics of this. For, you'll see why in obvious reasons. But you may have noticed two or three weeks ago on a, a Sunday night, I believe it was, I was preaching, I kind of made the offhanded joke. Some people ask me sometimes, you ever think about quitting preaching? And I say, yeah, every Sunday night, because you know, you're just tired, right? And we kind of were kidding about that in the meeting a little bit, but I said, I'm not, by the way, I'm not sure if Leah knows this. So I'm going to share it with you. It's very, very personal to me. 
there are Monday mornings where I wake up and I'm tired from Sunday. You give a lot of yourself when you're a preacher on Sunday. And you sometimes wonder, is it worth it? You sometimes wonder, is this going to be just another week? But I have something on my phone that I open up sometimes on Monday mornings. In fact, almost every Monday morning. And again, I will not show all the specifics. You, can read if, you couldn't read if I, if I could. But in this corner is a little peach-colored box that has five names. And there are five people I want to reach with the gospel. And my goal every week is to try to reach at least one of them. Maybe not they'll be baptized by the end of the week. But I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something for at least one of those five every week. I'm not saying that to put myself on a pedestal. I'm saying that because that's what it takes even for me to remind myself, this is what I'm here for. I'm not here just to live a few years, have a good life, and die. And, oh, I guess I'm going to heaven because I smiled a lot and I went to church and I even put on a tie. Look out. I mean, look, how wonderful am I? I'm here to get to heaven and to do all I can to take somebody else with me. As a husband, that means I need to try to help my wife reach heaven. As a father, it means I've got two precious gifts from God. I need to make sure that I do everything I can that they reach heaven as well. But as a friend, as a neighbor, as a co-worker, as a classmate, I can't go through life And people, when I die, remember more that I told them what sports team I liked than I cared about their soul. Or I spent more time telling them what a great deal I got on a car or a piece of real estate or an outfit than I spent telling them that Jesus died for them. Can you even imagine what a difference it would make if every member of this congregation decide to put the excuses behind, face the rejection and difficulty, and say, I'm going to tell somebody. Whether they listen or not, because when you find that one, promise me, I promise you, it'll be worth it. I don't think I'll be doing right at all this morning if I didn't end this sermon by reminding us of how one becomes a Christian. It'd be foolish for me to preach a sermon about telling people about how to become a Christian and not do so. And I know most people in this room are Christians. Most people in this room have followed that plan of salvation. But there might be someone here this morning who hasn't or, or who wonders if they have. I want to make sure I do what Jesus said. And Jesus Himself said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. Jesus Himself said that I must repent or I'll perish. Jesus Himself said, the one who confesses Me before men, I'll confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. Confess just means you say the same thing as, I'm going to say about Jesus what God says about Jesus. He is the Savior. He is Lord. And Jesus Himself said, the one who believes and is baptized, immersed in water, the one who believes and is baptized, that's the one who will be saved. Mark 16 and verse 16. I want to do what Jesus said. And I want as many people as possible to do what Jesus said. Have you done that? As I said just a moment ago, I presume that most of us in this room have followed that plan of salvation. But maybe this morning, you're sitting there and you think, I'm not doing everything I can.
And I'm not saying I'm living a terrible, evil, profligate, sinful life. But it's time I woke up. And I want some prayers to be encouraged. I want my church family to put their arms around me and take my request before the throne of God to pray for strength and pray for encouragement. Or maybe this morning you are a Christian and there is something in your life that's sinful. And you want to take that barrier out of the way to be forgiven by God and you want us to pray with you for that forgiveness. There's no better time than now. There's no better place than this. There's no better people than these. And whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.